Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa, and welcome to Three Miked Up Board Gamers, the new podcast from Three Minute Board Games. The premier board game podcast emanating from Aotearoa in the South Pacific. I'm your host, Jay from Three Minute Board Games. I am joined today by my co-host, Conan McKegg. Howdy. And our special guest, Fraser Pete. Hello. Now, the regular format for the show will be Conan and I as your regular, recurring, recurrent co-hosts of the show. And we will have a different person each time on the show. A different third. A third wheel, if you would. The reason for this is that I want different voices. Part of what makes 3-Minute Board Games what it is, is that behind the scenes there are a lot of contributors to the show that give their ideas, give their feedback, give their thoughts to me, that I form and shape into the 3-Minute Reviews. They're not just my ideas and they're not just my opinions. And I want those voices to come through on this channel. I also want to do this podcast inside my own house, so that means I'm not going to be interviewing people from all over the world. Unless you can fly to Wellington, New Zealand, and you want to sit on the podcast, that'd be absolutely great. But it's going to be Aotearoa Strong here. Aotearoa representing, you're going to hear New Zealand voices on gaming and New Zealand matters. So most of you will know me, uh, Jay from Three Minute Board Games. I'm now going to introduce my co-host, who is going to be a recurring villain on this series, and that man is Conan McKeg, a man who rarely swipes right on a board game, but just as really lets them go to second base. He is the creative mind behind Two Naked Gay Guys comedy series on YouTube. And when he's not reviewing games, he's reviewing queer films on his channel. The King of Kickstarter, the Baron of Backers, gamer, advocate, filmmaker, and philosopher, the magnificent, mercurial Conan McKeg. Hi! I'm a villain? Oh, crikey. I'm feeling like I've got to put on more of a dark, deep, villainous voice. That's what you took from that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the rest of it was true. (laughs) I'm fine. And uh, we'll introduce our guest at this time as well. Our first guest is a long-time friend and contributor to the channel. We're not playing games. He contributes to the Diceratops live D&D show that you can also catch on a podcast. Oh, that, and he also heals the sick. Legend says that not one infant in the neonatal intensive care ward has beaten him at a board game. A man who can speedily decide on a life-saving treatment for a child, yet takes 10 minutes to decide what card to play. The Doctor of Dice, the physician of filibustering, my friend, Dr. Fraser Pete. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> I kind of feel like I should have actually like gone more with a... Yeah! <laughs> I mean... I'm really proud of the line, the position of filibustering. That is yeah, you that is, in a nutshell. It is so you. I mean, it's fair. If I can respond, it would be that, you know, board games, decisions. I mean, these are key decisions to the future of our lives. You've got to make the right one, all right? Oh, dear. So there's a recurring meme in our wider community, which is, whose turn is it? Then you pause and say Fraser, because invariably it's Fraser's turn and he's making a call. So, welcome. Whose turn is it, Fraser? Thanks. That's great. (laughs) I almost feel like that needs to be a section on the podcast. (laughs) Dear listener, I'd like it known that, as far as I'm aware, this podcast just could be called Roast Fraser, for for all I know. (laughs) Yeah, fair warning to any guests who do come on. You you will get an introduction uh, like this. No, I love it. Anyway, we're going to jump straight into our first recurring and regular segment, and that is The Hot Seat, where we grill our guest 10 questions in a very short time frame. Fraser Pete, your time starts now. 
What D&D classes you'll go to? Wizard. Better game, Space Corp or Leaving Earth? L- leaving Earth. What TV show medical mistake annoys you the most? Oh, CPR. It's terrible. Just people who do CPR in the show should absolutely go on to like a basic life support course run by a paramedic and get taught how to actually do CPR because I honestly, I think it's dangerous how bad it is because people think that they know how to do CPR or at least have some idea of what they're supposed to be doing and it's terrible. Amen to that. Yeah. How about like, oh, he's dead already. And it's like, that's the point. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On a scale of one to ten, how smug did you feel when you found out you were the first human to beat me at Twilight Struggle? Wait, I was the first? Yeah. Well, Well, right now, I guess. (laughs) I knew that I beat you on my first go. That was what I always went about it with. I didn't realize I was the first to beat you overall. Yeah. Scale of 1 to 10. Uh, 10? I'm feeling really <laughs> smug right now. I mean, I, I do worry you're going slightly easy on me because it was my first game, though. Yeah, a little, but you still won. In my first game. <laughs> what board game theme immediately makes you think, I really want to get and play that game? Oh, space stuff. It's probably my go-to. Yeah. yeah. So, so is it just any space stuff? So, well, I mean, sci-fi in general I love, but specifically, like, realistic space stuff always sings to me. So like, that's the Space Corps that, and the Leaving Earths. Which yeah. Is why I, I suspect that that might have been your answer, yeah, but yeah. yeah. You, you picked well. <laughs> Break from top to bottom your favourite analogue gaming types from the following list. LARP, collectible card games, board games, miniature games, and role-playing. Uh... Probably LARP, then role-playing games, then board games, then miniatures games, was it? And then card collectible card games. So that's from top to bottom. Yeah, the top three is tough, though. Yeah. But definitely uh, miniatures and collectible card games would be at the bottom. Cool. If someone was coming to visit Aotearoa, what's a nice spot they should absolutely visit? I mean, Wellington is actually a really great place to visit, in my opinion. There's lots to do here. But... If I'm going to go slightly out of where I live. Um, oh, that's a tough one. One spot in Aotearoa. Uh, I don't want to leave dead here. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not like you're playing a card, buddy. Just just choose. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's also kind of hard because like anywhere from Aotearoa is pretty much a yeah. day away from anywhere else in Aotearoa. So. That's very <laughs> true. Yeah. And all right, I'm going to give... An answer that's an honest answer with the caveat being it's already known to be quite nice and it is full of tourists. Um, but that's probably the Abel Tasman National Park. Yeah. The the coastline walk there is is stunning and it's full of tourists for a reason because it's really nice. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's the only tramp I've ever done where you can walk over a rise, go, oh, I'm hot. I'll go for a swim at this beautiful beach. Go for a swim. Put your gear back on. Walk over a low rise. Ah, it's kind of hot. I'll go for a swim at this other beautiful beach. And rinse and repeat all day. It's amazing. Oh, that sounds fantastic. In Defenders of Soma, if I was to attack you with mycoplasma, what would you defend with? Azithromycin. It's a very common cause of atypical pneumonia, particularly in uh, school-aged children. And the final question, sing the next line of the song. At first I was afraid, I was petrified. Na, 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 na. <laughs> you are so heterosexual. Man, you're so heterosexual. <laughs> <laughs> I got put on the spot. <laughs> My latent heterosexuality <laughs> shone through. All right, your time on the hot seat is over. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs>
It's the elephant, the elephant, the elephant in the room. The next segment coming up is the elephant in the room, where we discuss big ticket items of the day, important news, and other things that confound and annoy us. This week's elephant in the room is District 9. Now, the team and I had the privilege, the responsibility, to test this game and consider reviewing it to put it up on the channel. And, uh, I'll hand over to Fraser. What did you think of District 9? Well, okay. People who know me know that I don't like to speak ill of things or people very much. And District 9 is a game where someone worked hard on it, or at least someone worked on it. Someone was involved, because it's not very clear much work was put into it. And as I said, I like to be polite, and it's really bad. Conan. Um, so I'd say a lot of work went into it. Um, that uh, demo set that they oh, it's was amazing. Beautifully like, produced. So, I, I don't think I've seen many, like, uh, pre-release um, products like that, that come out so beautiful. But, yeah, so, yeah, so the product, the, 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 the components, the boards, mm. the cards, everything looked fine, looked yeah. good, looked top-notch. But, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, it just felt... Oh, it was so obvious that more attention went into the design aspect of, like, the art design aspect of it than it felt went into the actual game design like the game design felt like they had a committee of people who all loved the district nine franchise and were all throwing out ideas about what a district nine board game could be and nobody was editing yeah and that's <clears throat> that's exactly the point i wanted to hit on is that game design is a process you start off with a core idea and then you throw a bunch of crap at the wall just throw ideas up on the wall and then you trim them down, you trim them down. What makes a great game is what didn't go into it. Not yeah. necessarily what went into it. And I've talked to people like Shem Phillips about this and he's all about this iterative process where you, where you streamline, you refine, you refine, you refine, you test, refine, and you just make the game better. None of that appears to have happened with District 9. Every original idea that was thrown up on the board is in the box. Well, that's like um, Ryan LeCoult. Like, one of the really fascinating things about the deluxe version of Empires of the Void 2 mm -hmm. is his developer's diary that comes with it as kind of an art book. And he actually shows you the iterations that he went through while designing the game. And that game went through quite a few uh, versions before he kind of hit upon the core idea that he was like, this is what I want the game to be about. If I recall, it's like version 15 or something. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing about this. I haven't had a chance to check it out myself. It does sound quite interesting. And I guess, I mean, I probably should qualify my statements about District 9 um, a little bit because obviously it's pretty harsh just to say it's bad. Um, but, I mean... You I, describe the game as Calvin Ball. <laughs> that's true when we're playing... <laughs> Good point. I did say I feel like we're playing Calvin Ball. But that's actually kind of where I'm going with this, is that, I mean, if I'm going to make a really big leap here, um, yeah. I feel like Calvin Ball would be fun. I feel like District 9 has elements of games that could be fun. There's probably about five games yeah. that could be fun, and if they pick one and develop that, you could have a really cool game. But as it stands, I could feel my enthusiasm to watch the film again 
dying. <laughs> I, I have to say, when you're designing, like, your key information board that's going to be used to remind people of rules, if the font of your rules is going below 11 font size, <laughs> you probably have a problem with your game. Yeah, you have, you have too many rules on the board. Yeah. But for me, it was the busy work of, right... Everyone draws a bunch of Wikis cards, and then we decide one to pick, and then we put them in a pouch, and then we draw two out and resolve them. It's like why, why just why not just let two the uh, the player who's active turn over two cards? Like, yeah, like that whole process does that just doesn't need to exist. It just it's superfluous. Yeah, well, that whole choose yeah the choosing of the cards and then. Passing the cards all around, and then shuffling the cards, and then revealing some of the cards, yeah. and, and putting them in the bloody pouch. <laughs> Let's not forget the fact that once you've done that, you have you you don't have to. It says the rules; uh, it's optional. But you put the cards inside a cat food pouch, and that actually reminds me of Kitchen Rush yep. because Kitchen Rush has a pouch yes. in the game that you put some elements of the of the game in spices yeah and that's de- a deliberate design choice because it drags things out like yes. they recognize right. that taking the pouch and opening it is time consuming mm. and in kitchen rush time is critical because you have literally four real-time minutes oh no i think it's three real-time minutes actually it depends on number of players yeah like. to to do it and and so that whole action is actually a deliberate system to make you not just always grab the pouch. Like, you've got to actually think about what are you doing and when you're doing it. Yeah. So that's the only reason you would have a mechanic like that, is if there is a time element to it. And there isn't in District 9. Yeah. So, aside from the mechanics, which we found confusing, um, bloated, and generally, we like finding out what the core game was and what you were supposed to be doing was actually quite obtuse. Mm. Um there were things like the right mechanic, which slowed the game down to a crawl and was just no fun. But there's another criticism of the game, and that is that it's a game about an apartheid analogue. Mm. And what are you playing? You're playing the guys roaming around evicting the prawns from their home and stealing their stuff. Mm. And I don't know, when looking at the District 9 setting, that's not what speaks to me about what the game should be no no i mean i was playing as a gang of of the prawns but that didn't feel better um because they're still doing the same thing yeah what like what were you doing that was different to what i was doing oh no nothing there's no real mechanical difference it was just very subtle flavor difference but now that makes me think like imagine a world where there was a block by block style district nine game yeah now oh that is how they should have done it, right? Yeah, yeah, arguably, yeah, yeah. Like I think one of the things that that was a big mistake that they made in the in the design is they were trying to replay the narrative of the film, which the whole act structure, yeah, so rigid, yeah. Mm. And, and Wycus is all about his. It, it was all about seeing his actions from the movie from a different perspective, mm. and that to me is not how you do an ip game at all and i mean you look at something like battlestar galactica which is one of the better ip games out there right and that doesn't really try to mimic the narrative of the show instead it tries to set up a game where you will have an emergent storyline 
that yeah. will feel like the show. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and we're going to be talking more about other IP games yep. later, and yep. that I'm absolutely going to echo what you just said, Conan, because all of my favorite IP games, their common element is that emergent narrative where you can tell a story that is um, inspired by the source material but not slavish to it, but you still feel like you could, if you really wanted to, recreate that original story. Mm. You just don't have to. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think, the sweet spot. But we will get into that in more detail later on. So to close off on District 9, I'd like to, to say that I think the team at Weta have done a stellar job assembling the game, of producing it, and I, I've i talked to Jono, who's the guy running this, and he is an excellent guy, and I really hated giving him the bad news that we thought the game was beyond bad. So what I'm saying is, if District 9 comes out as it is, it will be a terrible mistake for Weta, and it'll be a terrible mistake for anyone who backs it. But there's potential there. They've Absolutely. got such yeah. wonderful figures. They've got the collateral for a great game. They just need to get someone in to make that great game. It's, it's, it's editing. I think editing is one of the key things. And probably also having a rethink about who are who are the players playing. Yeah. 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 Who are the heroes of your story? Yeah. Who are the heroes of your story? Because if the heroes are the guys driving around in a truck, kicking over poor people and stealing their crap... That's a bad game. Arguably, yeah. For District 9. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, it's still beneath the table. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of making the elephant in the room concept a little bit too real. Yeah, yeah, it's still there. I've still got to send it back. Oh, no. <laughs> So, the next segment, we're going to interview Fraser on the Diceratops live D&D show. Tell us a few things about that. Who's involved? So, Diceratops Presents is a thing that my mate Morgan Davey um, has set up. I think, well, you two both know Morgan. Yes. Um, and uh, For those who don't, Morgan is a bit of a role-playing legend around Wellington. He's like a good-looking version of Lurch from the Adams Family. <laughs> That's actually so accurate. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, he's put together Diceratops Presents. We do D&D live shows with comedians. Uh, he, it's his baby, but I'm helping him out. Um, I pr- provide character voices and that sort of thing and um, give him feedback on the stories that he's putting together. Um, but he's the DM, and I help, and we have a rotating cast of comedians who play the characters. So how many shows have you done to date? So we've done three live shows so far, um, and the Diceratops Presents... Uh, uh, podcast um, has two episodes on it so far, um, which is uh, encompassing um, one of those shows because it got broken up into two halves. And are they a campaign or is it standalone adventures? They're standalone adventures, but each comedian has their own recurring character and there is an ongoing, I guess, continuity. Um, things that happen in one stay true in another. People who never went to the first show are probably very confused why our low-level dwarf fighter has a portable hole that has scorpions in it, but that's still a thing, you know, for example. <laughs> yep, for example. Oh, good stuff. So you can check it out um, if you uh, go... Probably the easiest thing to do is either to Google Diceratops NZ or Diceratops D&D Live, um, and you can find the link which uh, should tell you how to get the podcast, um, but I'll probably ask Jared if he'll let me put a link in the podcast description maybe yeah absolutely although you're not touching my site i'll put the link in the description damn it. <laughs> <laughs> keep your hands off my stash 
Thank you, Fraser. If you're interested in D&D podcasts and like the New Zealand style of comedy, which is represented by such things as Flight of the Concords and Thor Ragnarok, check out Diceratops D&D podcast. Our next segment is Conan's Kickstarter Connoisseur. <laughs> I did not pick that name. <laughs> Feel free to pick another name. Like uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I could come up with something quite so clever. <laughs> so the purpose of this segment is Conan is quite invested in Kickstarter. He looks up a lot of Kickstarter games. And he's usually how I find out about Kickstarter games. He normally goes... Wow, check out this thing I'm backing, or check out this game, I think it's up your alley. So, Conan, what have you been scoping out on Kickstarter over the last wee while? Okay, well, I've been scoping out quite a few, so <laughs> I've got I've got a list here yeah. that I'm going to try and get through as quickly as possible, but still actually tell you why I'm interested in some of these. Tell us a story. I'm okay. so unsurprised. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the the reality is is that yes i have a bit of a kickstarter addiction and i probably first thing i do when i wake up in the morning because or everything gets late at night is i check kickstarter games to go is there anything i want to at least like go i'm going to come back to this game yeah <laughs> so uh on that note uh there's a few games out that are sounding really interesting um there was merchants cove initially but after our discussions um and having a good look at it i'm just not sure how a game asymmetrical asymmetrical game that goes so asymmetrical that you've basically got four or five players around a table all playing a different game it's the root problem yeah so root's a great game but teaching everyone that first game there's so much overhead and Mm. you can't look at someone else and figure out what the hell they're doing but I think in Root's defense, they do a really good job of having everything tied to a core mechanic. And yep. then each different faction kind of spans out from that core. So you can teach players how to read their own rules. And if you're playing against someone else, you know that you just have to look at the victory track yep. to have a general idea of how well they're doing. Yeah, that's um, Whereas Merchant's Cove doesn't seem to have that. All right. um, the next Merchants one, Cove, not backing. Not backing. No, no. Uh, there's Matchbreaker, which I'm still really intrigued by. It's kind of. It sounds like it's kind of a um, one of those party games like uh, Cards Against Humanity and so on. Except, um, good. <laughs> except it's got a little bit more to it. There's um, you put prospective um, wooers out on the table. And then everyone secretly assigns good or bad traits to each of them. And then you find out if they're a match okay. or not. Yep. And you're trying you're trying to get a match, but you're trying to make sure that all the other players aren't. So is it one of those games where you'd win by voting who's the best? Or is it... Uh, you know, the from what I can understand, yeah. There's like a... You reveal all the cards and if you got it wrong and, okay. and then everyone takes a vote. So, yeah, it sounds like it could be fun. Um, I'm intrigued in checking it out. Uh, Fidget Factory looks really interesting. So it's kind of basically Dice Forge meets uh, Fidget Cubes. Ugh. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, basically you're playing people on a... I think it's a space station or a spaceship and they're trying to repair things and to do that they use Fidget Cubes. Don't... Don't try to examine that too much. I think I might have to bring up a picture of that one. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, basically you've got uh, little trolls who are carrying uh, segments of fidget cube. And then you have, like, a cube that you build and you 
design the faces of your fidget cube for it. That's it fascinating. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, one of my one of the things that kind of had me raise an eyebrow and consider it is uh, there's Cthulhu as one of the creatures, and it says you can only communicate in alien gibberish. This <laughs> 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 is very mountains of madness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got uh, I saw one. It's not really me um, because I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm more of a worker placement uh, card drafting kind of guy. I like games that have really intriguing mechanics, mm-hmm. uh, but I thought. I should be a bit fair to people who like games other than mine. Yep. So I had a good look, and there's um, a strategic game called Saigon 75, which is uh, set in Saigon yeah. uh, during that era. Uh, and that looks like that would be quite a really interesting... Um, not quite war game. It looks like it's more of a, a grand strategy game. Okay. So that sounds uh, worth having a look. I think it it, ta- it, it looks like, like something you would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the minute I saw it, I thought that's Jay. Yeah. Um, there's a really interesting role playing game out by a group who did recently did a role playing game called uh, Never Go Never Go Home. Hmm. Uh, or is no Never Coming Home? Yep. Uh, which is set, which was a horror role-playing game set in World War One, And so now they've done another game called Tenebra, uh, Tenebria Remnant of Rome, where you're basically a group of people living in a Roman colony just after the fall of Rome, and you're uh. basically trying to keep civilization alive as it's kind of crumbling. So it's the Dark Ages are, un- are oncoming. They're, they're coming, yeah. And, and so it doesn't look like it's got a lot of a fantasy element in it, which is what really interested me. Like, they're kind of presented... Um, barbarian clans as these kind of almost supernatural threats in the eyes of the populace yeah. but the game itself is all about um, building up your community and surviving and keeping it all together uh, so I really recommend that one okay well that's a, that's a pretty awesome list of stuff yeah. um, so thank you Conan and this will be a regular segment so stay tuned for all these kind of things All right, moving on to our next segment. We have What's New to You? Now, this is a segment where everyone talks about the games they've played most recently. So we're only going to cover one or two games that people have played most recently. And it's just a quick a quick fire roundtable about that. So we'll start with Conan. Hey, well, funnily enough, what's new to me is also what I'm going to be talking about later. Um, so the newest thing that I've been playing is Horrified. Um, okay. which is the Universal Monsters board game. And this kind of just came out of nowhere to me. Um, on Facebook, I just started seeing loads of people posting about Horrified and posting pictures of it. And I was like, oh, Universal Monsters, that's my jam. Yeah. So um, it's not available in New Zealand yet. Um, Typical. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> apparently, it's also quite limited over in the States. So you can only buy it from Target, apparently. Oh, uh, it's a Target exclusive, right. Yeah. So eventually, it'll probably get released to a wider audience. But Target will have, like... So it's, it's going to be kind of like Megaland, basically. Yeah. Um, and Fog of Love, I think, was like that as well. No, Fog of Love went the other way. They oh. kick-started, and then they went retail. And then they got a exclusive deal with... Um, 
Walmart, I think. Okay. I yeah. can't remember. I can't remember who they got. Well, I know it was one of the big chains. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, and we don't have here. Yeah, and yeah. that's why they did the new covers for them. Right. Um, ah. So yeah, so I I tracked it down on eBay, and um, it only arrived yesterday. So I've only played the solo game of it, and it, it it's a really interesting mix of pandemic style mechanics with. I find it really hard to think of another game because each of the monsters has their own kind of mini game about how you defeat them. So there's a really interesting... So it's it's a pandemic thing, thing, but there's multiple ways to solve it. Instead of just having to cure X number of diseases, you've got a different set of tick boxes you have to go through based on the monster combination. And do you have more than one in the game? Yeah, you start off uh, uh, basic as two, standard as three, and challenging as four monsters. And they have six different types of monsters because Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are considered one monster. Yeah. This sounds expandable. Oh, God, yes. (laughs) Definitely expandable. And it's got so much going on in it. I think um, solo play wasn't so great just because it felt a little easy. Yep. Um, but it's also a little challenging at the same time. But I think with multiple players, uh, the challenge will ramp up quite quickly, uh, as is always the case with pandemic-style games, yeah. really, is the less players you have, the easier the game is. And I guarantee the first expansion will be challenge mode! Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so you've got a lot of things going on, and you're, you're chasing after villages and so on. Fraser? So, I've... A couple of games of, um, are new to me, but actually most of those are ones that I've played with you lot. Um, <laughs> so probably the only game I've played recently that's new to me that wasn't with you two, um, well, with you two and others, um, is Gunshin Clever, um, which oh, yeah. is a roll and write. And it's my very first time I've ever played a roll and write. And I just played it the other day, actually, with um, Conan's Flatmate Nasir. And I had a great time. I had... Not, never been exposed to these roll and rights before, but it was clever. It was um, it was easy to pick up. There was some interesting kind of mechanics. There was stuff to dig into with which my kind of slightly puzzle puzzle solvy yeah. kind of enthusiasm yeah. um, kind of came through with, and you started to sort of see the the synergies and the and the ways that you could sort of do this to do that to do this. And yeah, I had a great time. I, I really enjoyed it, actually. I, I also want to point out that during that game, Fraser managed to make decisions quite promptly. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I would like to point out that that whole meme of whose turn is it, Fraser, is quite old, and I've gotten a lot better. This is true. This is true. Uh, and it's you... not always me anymore. Yeah. Thank you very much. It, w- it was me during Dr. Luca, that's for sure. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I got crippled by that game. My brain just froze, froze up. Um... No, Fraser, going back 15 years was way worse. Way, way worse. I think that's true of any person in <laughs> any context. <laughs> Touche. Um, I, I'd just like to go on the record. I was fantastic 15 years ago. No, fantastic now. <laughs> you paragon of virtue, you whatever. So for me, the uh, new, new to me game, uh, there's two of them I want to cover off. And the first one is Detective City of Angels. And it is a crime-solving noir game in the style of L.A. Noir and L.A. Confidential. How it subverts the normal detective trope is that you're not just working through a book. One player is playing the chisel. And the chisel's goal is to misdirect the players. So when they ask questions of a witness, they've got multiple options. So the chisel can actually choose different responses and send people off on different tangents. The investigators can choose to challenge that response. And if they're guess correctly that it's a a misdirect they'll get the right information 
But if they guess wrong, the chisel will have stuff that they can use to slow down and delay them later on. And for me, a lot of the problem with detective games is they rely on clever writing. And clever writing usually means crimes don't pan out the way they should. How they would in the real world. It's usually some wacky clue that gives you the, the answer. In this because there's that ambiguity in an investigation, it's that extra layer, I think, that detective games have needed for a damn long time. And I really kind of regret that it's a Kickstarter-only game. Uh, because it's one, I think, that if more people played it and it got out in stores, it could really shake up the genre. We we actually... I, I had that because yep. I kickstarted it. And <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I loved it. Because, you know me, I love detective games. And it definitely, I think, addressed a lot of the issues that you brought up. Especially yep. because like games like Chronicles of Prime, which is another one I really love. Um, I quite like Chronicles, yeah. Yeah, that does have kind of a little bit of variability based on the quality of the the case that you're working. Yeah, right. Um, whereas Detective City of Angels has oh, such a beautiful presentation and, and so on. The problem was that the regular gamers that I played it with hated it really yeah they oh, wow. they were like i don't see the point of the chisel fascinating i know right and i was like but that's kind of the whole point of this is that <laughs> it's a lot more interactive and but i think the thing was again it's kind of like we were having a talk before before the um podcast about uh people who are very statistical strategic thinkers yeah. as opposed to people who are kind of narrative thinkers in board games so this is the call to call to adventure yeah, thing yeah. again. If you play call to adventure just for the numbers, you're not it's pretty enjoy average. It. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of game there yeah, really yeah. for that. I mean, it's fine, but it's yeah. not nothing more than. But fine. you're not playing. Yeah, if you're playing it for the story aspect, yeah. then you real then you understand what the game is. And these the the main complaint that got given to me was if the chisel can lie, then we can't guess the clue right. And so we're not going to solve the case. And I'm like, that's the point. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 fantastic. I, I love it when you hear about a game that you had a really positive experience about. And then someone else is like, that's garbage. And you, well, that's, that's because they're coming at it from completely different. Gen 7. Gen 7. Gen 7. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for the record, this is three of the four people who played through a full campaign of Gen 7, a game that got panned by so many people. And we had a really good time. Yeah. And and I'm in the middle of playing it with a completely different group of players. Some of them who are these statistical thinker types. And we're having an absolute blast with it again. Yeah. And I think it's because for them, there is that like yeah. having to think about, oh, what are my odds if I do this or do that and so on. And because of the way that it's all structured, it draws you into thinking in the narrative, even when you're not really intending to. And I, that's something I really love about it. Yep. All right, so and my last game uh, is going to be Pavlov's House. So Pavlov's House is a game set in Stalingrad, in the, the Battle of Stalingrad, obviously. And it's a solo game, although I think you can play it co-op, where it zooms into a the complete tactical level of a house that you're defending, the operational level of where troops and stuff are coming in pandemic style, and in a strategic level where you're building artillery resources, trying to ship supplies across the Volga, and building air defences. So you've got to play across this three layers. So you start by planning your strategy and how you're going to play on the big board, and that might bring more ammunition or more resources into um, the house. Then the Wehrmacht will attack along the different channels like they would in a pandemic game, 
And if you've deployed machine guns, you might stop them from advancing and all that kind of stuff. And then finally, you take your actions inside the house where you're actually moving individual soldiers around to their individual positions. And one of the things I absolutely adore about this is that the guy who wrote the game did his research. There's this great companion book that details the entire Battle of Stalingrad right down to the individual records for all of the soldiers who were in Pavlov's house um, and, and their fates. And a lot of them did die in the battle. If you don't know, the Battle of Stalingrad is the most horrific battle in human history. It's absolutely ghastly. And Pavlov's house was this sort of anchoring defensive point in the line that um, they, they held for, for the war. And yeah, uh, wonderful solo game. If you like solo or war games, or especially solo war games, and you haven't played it, definitely check this one out. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll show it to you guys after uh, we're finished. The next segment is Stacking the Shelves, where I quickly go through what's arrived for our three-minute board games over the last week or so. And we've got two new games, both from the same publisher. Um, and that is Anomaly, which is a hidden movement game with the quirk that all players are hidden from each other. So there's a monster trying to track down these students on a space station. The monster's hidden from um, the students. The students are hidden from each other. You can't reveal who's where. And you have to guess when you're in the same area as someone else if you want to attack them and do stuff. So if you're a student, you might go, Ah, I think the monster's there. I'm going to biff a grenade and try to do damage. But that will give away possibly your position and where you are. So, yeah, I really want to see how this one works and get it on the table. Looks like it's going to be a good one for three players especially with two students and, and one monster. And the other one is the collector's edition of Everdell and the Pearlbrook expansion, which Conan will no doubt be able to tell me a lot more about because he's played it a lot more than I have. <laughs> well, not the expansion, at least. Not the, the expansion. Everdell no. itself. Everdell. Everdell, um, I, I kind of secretly give myself credit for getting half of Wellington into this game. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, because my flatmate, Nasir, uh, who is a much bigger uh, board game fanatic than I am, uh, she, I think she's got it counted over 220 board uh -huh. games in her house. Um, she, of course, mingles with quite a few different board gaming groups across uh, the city and so often we get invited to go along to various gaming groups and um because she loved everdell uh when i got the original kickstarter of it uh she took it around everywhere and everdell's a uh tableau building game uh where you're drafting cards to build up a tableau of your city uh you only have 15 spaces that you can build in so you've got to be really selective uh and it's an engine builder in that the buildings and uh inhabitants that you select will then decide help decide what further cards and resources and goods and points you get at the end so it's a really good game for that uh and it had a really nice replayability because yes. because of all the various right. random factors that you could add in to keep each game playing diff with different rules uh, and so Pearlbox just basically added more of that flexibility to the game to ensure that this is a game that um, you can always pull out at any time and just sit down and have a game and have a really good time. And I think that's that's its real strength. It's one of those complex but not too complex yeah. kind of games with really simple 
for me, with the one game of it I've played, uh, and I do intend to play it a lot more before it goes on the channel, it felt like the game that... Because, you know, I didn't really like Wingspan. I actually thought mechanically yeah. Wingspan was a bit, bit shallow and a bit... <clears throat> wasn't engaging enough or thinking enough for me to really dig into. I think Everdell's the kind of game that could have been a bigger Wingspan. Mm. Like, it's... I think there's more decision space in the game, and it's equally pretty and good-looking. Yeah. It's just... You know, the quirks of fate, one becomes a, a mega hit. Well, it's still a pretty popular game, pretty successful game. I, I think but. it's it's done well on the Kickstarter front. But yeah, it's definitely not a not a everyone uh, and their dog is running out to play Everdell. And that yeah. is a shame because yeah. it is a beautiful game. And when you've got that three-dimensional tree <laughs> set up, it's just... It's a game that demands it's, your attention. Oh yeah, you put it down on a table in a convention hall, and if people haven't seen it, they'll walk past and go, "What the hell is that?" And, <laughs> and the latest Kickstarter had a wooden tree. Oh, which, which we both. So Nasia's gone and bought her own set. Yeah, yeah. So we now have two sets of Everdell in the house, <laughs> um, and and it's like normally when we end up with two sets, I end up selling mine yeah. because Nasia's the bigger board game fan. So I'm like, I'm not as addicted yeah. and this, year, this it, year by the way we we would like you to come on the show at she some point. has said she's interested so that's good excellent she she's she is a font of knowledge about a lot of games yeah Nasir yeah. and i we go way back we've been playing board games on and off together for what at least 10 15 yeah. years maybe 2004 or 5 something like that yeah so yeah love to get her on the show so yeah so to, to, to wrap it up yeah the um yeah, the wooden tree is really gorgeous, and I think that was a really clever decision on Starling Games' part to yep. to produce that, because one of the biggest concerns about Everdell was that the tree made out of cardboard was going to have a very short lifespan, yep. and so they, they addressed that, and I think that's always been one of the reasons. They, they are a really impressive team for being able to produce such awesome products, and they come out really quickly. Like mm. they, They're really good at setting... Oh, we're going to have this ready December 2020, right? Yeah. And then it comes out September 2020 because they always account for that. Which is interesting because, like, my experience with, with Starling um, and, to a lesser extent, with Victory Point Games, which they also own, has always been really positive. Mm. Uh, but there's apparently a lot of people out online who, in the previous incarnation or in some other form, they've got a lot of bad blood with them. So, oh. yeah. never I've never personally had a problem no. with them, but I know a lot of people that... We'll hear the name and go, bad company. And those people are perfectly entitled to their opinions. You know, I'm not diminishing that. It's just, yeah, it's just curious. It it shows you that that whole thing about how consumer confidence in Mm. your brand is so fickle that you've got to get it right Mm. every time because it it just takes one bad experience to to put people off. Yeah, and then those people will go, I'm going to back this. You Mm. shouldn't back this. Don't buy that game. Those guys screwed me over a few years back. Yeah, it's just yeah. that kind of legacy that hangs around. Well, they, they used to have a saying in retail. Um, I think it was, for every bad experience that a customer has, eight more people are going to get told about it. But for every good experience someone has, maybe four will get told. Yeah. Yep, that sounds about right. Interesting. Mm. All right, let's move on to the final roundtable, which is on IP-based games. So what we're going to do is we're going to whip around and we're going to count down uh, six different games. And I'll tell you what the categories are when we come to them. And then we're going to have a discussion back and forth while we're doing this 
on the nature of IP games, what makes them work, what makes them suck, and some of the pitfalls they fall into. So what we're going to do is we'll start off with Fraser and his third favourite IP game. Oh, you're going to make me rank them. Oh, no. <laughs> See, well, I already uh, one of your this. three favourites. <laughs> no, no, no. Third favourite. All right. Um, Battlestar Galactica. Um, so, the, it, 2008, I went on to Board Game Geek and I just, I was going to present them in, um, in ranking order. And it's actually the lowest ranked on Board Game Geek of my top three. Um, and it um, got 7.7 for what's worth, um, which I think is probably a little bit low because it's quite good. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, Love Battlestar Galactica. Great board game. So, we're going to spoil it here, because um, I've also got Battlestar on my list. And because we're not ranking them, fuck it, I'm just going to mention it now. Battlestar Galactica is also on my list. And the reason that is, is every time we play it, it's just a fantastic experience. Uh, it's emergent narrative ideas in it. Different things happen. There's suspicion at the table. There's name calling. There's card counting. And for a particular group of mine, this is our signature game. This is the game when all five of us together, this is the one we'll be most likely to play if we really want to have a good time. And I think we've played like 15, 20 odd games of it, like a lot of Battlestar over the years. And it just, I can't imagine it working with another IP. I just can't imagine all of those mechanics working for something else. You can't retheme it as yeah, is. Yeah, if, you, if you did, it would just come across as feeling like... This kind of feels a bit like Battlestar <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I'm surprised you didn't bring it up, so I will. Um, Jared um, has coined a term um, from Battlestar Galactica that I actually quote in conversations and contexts <laughs> that may not even reference Battlestar Galactica until I bring up this concept, um, which, and correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, but goes something along the lines of incomputrich. Incomputrich is the word. Um, which I believe you did. You coin it before or after your blog, but uh, no, it was during a during a um, it was during a game uh, with Thomas, and yeah, I did post it on the Vom Creek blog um, back in about two thousand and twelve. And it's the idea that someone is so incompetent at a traitor board game that you immediately assume that they what they're doing is traitorous, and it's not because they're the Cylon; it's because they're just clueless. <laughs> and we've got a friend of ours, Thomas, who. He just does this to mess with people. He Not because he's a silent, he just likes doing, oh, I'm going to do that because it looks fun. And that's his thought process. Oh, I'm going to jump in a fighter and go out and do stuff. It's like, well, there's no vipers out there. Yeah, looked fun. And you just assume he's guilty. And it's a real problem when he is, because you're so used to <laughs> is, is, is this our Thomas? No, no, no. no. Different Thomas. Different oh, Thomas. Okay. Because I was like, yeah, no, it's although I can kind of see that, that Thomas was also doing that. <laughs> but it's, it's an applicable concept to a lot of board games, particularly ones that have traders. We just like, I just can't tell if you aren't getting this game. <laughs> Or you have, and you're playing us. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things we always come back to is the idea that board games are there to tell stories. And the fact that we, we immediately reference stories like this with a game like Battlestar Galactica means it's doing its job really well. Very true. Yeah. All right, so you're um, one of your three... Oh, one of my games. three top favourites. Yep. Oh, well, one of them I was going to name, I'm pretty sure is going to end up on Fraser's list, so I'm actually going to go for one that I'm pretty confident neither of you have played, because, you know, I'm like that. Yeah? Uh, it's 
kind of true. I'm always the one who shows up to games with like, here's my new board <laughs> game that none of you have played. <laughs> Let's play it. Um, but I'm not like, okay, so we have one person in one of our gaming groups who always does that, but he has not opened the box. Oh, yeah. oh, I hate that guy. Yeah. And so he opens the box and he's popping stuff out. And while everyone's like going, are you sure we should be playing this game yeah. right now? It's, uh, I mean, Nasir's kind of got the thing where it's like, she has to read the rules yep. before she'll play games. So she's keen to bring a new game in, but she has to have read the rules so she can explain the rules because she refuses to play a game with people who don't know how to play a game, which, which is, is fair. It's a fairly fair rule to have. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm the same, pretty much. Yeah. So my game is uh, Crusader Kings, ah. which... I yeah. know Jay and Steph are keen to play at some point. I have read the rules, but uh, we only had two of us and there was a three-player minimum, so we didn't get around to playing it. So as a game, uh, talking about building stories, that mm. game is all about emergent stories because you're playing three generations of a, of a dynasty, basically. And it captures the, the feel of the video game quite well in a smaller sort of frame of time because that is one sprawling ass video yeah it's it's huge and so being able to capture even like a like a sense of that is really good so i think having that three dynasties allows you to sort of have a bit of the sprawl without having the game feel like it's being dragged down by the sprawl uh and because like the way that you uh rather than rolling dice the way that you're randomly resolving issues is you're pulling character traits out of a bag and all the character traits are basically your rulers character traits or sometimes the character traits of their kids and so like when you pull it out like lustful and then you just go oh for god's sake it was that god awful son of mine again he's gone and screwed everything up because you have to go and try and have sex with the enemy's daughter you know that kind of it's yeah. got that kind of narrative thing nice. coming out of it and i i thought that was that was just oh, yeah genius she's kiss all right, Fraser, we're on to you for one of your games that you thought were not that flash. Oh, we're going to go. The bad ones. Right, well, I have some slightly um, unusual choices for this. Well, the first one's probably not super unusual because it's just bad, um, which <laughs> is that back in 2012, um, there were a couple of games that came out to tie into The Hobbit. Um, an Unexpected Journey. Yeah. <laughs> and there's actually quite a few. So... The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, 2012, which has a rating of... Well, it's not the one that has 6.3, which was actually designed by Rainer Knizia, of all people. Which is meant to be quite a reasonable game. Well, it's got 6.3, which is more than mine got. (laughs) (laughs) It's also not the 2012 adventure game, which got 3.25, which is more than mine got. Oh, Christ. (laughs) The one that I played, actually with Nasir and a couple of other people as well. I, um, I should point out that Fraser contacted... No, he, he asked Nasir when he was over for board games the other day, what was the name of that game? Because <laughs> I was trying to work out which it was. Yeah. And um, and I contacted the various people I played with, and the theme of the responses I got was along the lines of, oh God, and oh, I blocked that from my memory. Um, but anyway, The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey from 2012 has a rating of 2.8 on Board Game Geek. It's pretty much one of the worst gaming experiences of my life. I don't think we finished the game. We had to get drunk, which is actually quite unusual for me, because I'm not a big drinker. And whilst drunk on the train ride home, we came up with a better game that even when we sobered up in the morning, we were like, yeah, that's a better game. 
going to bother going to the mechanics. It was just really bad. Ah, <laughs> uh, good boot. Put that boot in. Oh, oh, I'm giving it a kick. I mean, I know I'm going to come across as such an, a mean person from listening to podcasts, <laughs> and I do try. I honestly do try to be, you know, kind and compassionate to people. But it was so bad. Yeah, some things, some things don't deserve your kindness. Mm, uh, yeah. Oh man, I, I I'm gonna feel really pathetic following this up because my second bad game isn't actually that bad and it's legendary x-files oh and the reason i'm putting it on the bad list is first of all i don't like legendary as a core system like legendary marvel i think is a very forgettable game that does absolutely nothing for me legendary encounters aliens i find actually quite good i find that the mix of mechanics and the systems just gel perfectly and then x-files they try to i don't know recapture the magic they tried to use 90% of the same system with the Aliens game. And where Aliens, you'll have like a ticking cards moving down the ventilation shaft towards you that you have to kill before they get to you. In the X-Files, it's like Monsters of the Week. Mm. And there's hidden cards. And instead of trying to solve objectives, you're trying to piece together this conspiracy. But it just feels too scattergun. So where... Each Aliens game is focused on one film and the three-act structure of one film. The X-Files is three seasons that you play at once. So it's just like, oh, remember this character? Remember this thing? Remember this disconnected idea? It's just blah. None of the tension, none of the excitement, none of the real feeling that you got in Aliens. And also the graphic design's choices of making it all look like 80s bureaucratic clip art was really bad. So it's, yeah, it's going to get kicked out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Right, Conan, one of your um, disappointing IP games. Okay, one of my disappointing, I kind of, the two disappointing IP games that I chose were both by the same crowd and they're both kind of disappointing for the same reasons. But <laughs> the one that I'll mention um, is Labyrinth, the board game. So that's, okay, to clarify, that's the not the labyrinth where you've got the dials yeah, and you're moving the, the, the no, no. thing. It's not labyrinth by Volko, no. the uh, War on Terror game. No, it's the one that Jim Henson. It's, a, the, it's the Jim Henson branded board game that comes with the very nicely sculpted miniatures of the key characters from Labyrinth. Yep. Um, beautiful art, beautiful presentation. Um, not a lot of game. Yeah, I, I've heard this. I've heard it's basically a roll and move. Pick it's up. a roll and move game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like a, it's got pretenses of being like a game where you're on quests before you you face off against Jareth. But really, it, it it's no different from one of those old classics of place your piece on start and roll dice until you get to the piece to the end. Yeah, so like the old GI Joe eighties. Yeah board games and it was really disappointing because i was kind of hoping for something that was because you know to me like ip games they've got a catch of the catch of the feel i mean as as you know jared the my favorite style of any kind of board game is that it presents a theme and then i i feel that theme when i play the game like kitchen rush one of my top five games feels like what i remember working (laughs) in a in a restaurant in in a restaurant felt like which yeah. is you were saying shit 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 shit, shit <laughs> for a lot of the, a lot of your your shift absolutely and, and and i love the fact that it captured that that feeling of stress without actually being stressful <laughs> um that that's a real that's really clever design and, and labyrinth of the game just labyrinth. didn't capture any of that uh, well i guess it, it captured the feeling of a dream because you kept falling asleep <laughs> 
I've just thought of a new tagline for Kitchen Rush, which is Kitchen Rush. The game that got this podcast an explicit rating. <laughs> 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 Alright, Fraser, let's move on to another one of your favourites. Okay, so I'm going to go with Star Wars Rebellion as my second favourite, um, seeing as you asked me to rank them before. So, um, um, just to jump in, uh, Rebellion is also on my list. <laughs> Rebellion is also on my list. <laughs> I, I got it first, so I'm yeah. going to say something. Which, see, this this, this was the one I, I knew it was going to be oh, on yeah. your list. Just, for people who know me, this is a terribly un... un um, unsurprising list. Um, Interestingly enough, it is space stuff, but it's not realistic space stuff. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Um, what about my top's not going to be space stuff? Anyway, um, so Star Wars Rebellion, uh, I mean, you know, IP games, they come out, you go, will this be good? Will this be a cash-in? You kind of don't know. And then Star Wars Rebellion blew me away. I honestly, I, I didn't know what to expect, and I played it, and I was like, there is two great games here. Yeah. Um, and they mesh perfectly, yeah. and I feel like I could tell the story of the original trilogy, or not, and I could have fun both ways, and there's just these great stories that come out of it, and we've kind of been harping on this point about, you know, what's the emergent yeah. narrative, what's the stories, and that yeah. sort of thing, but it's such a great example yeah. of it, even more, I feel, than Battlestar Galactica, yeah. of just getting that theme of, this is a sequence of events, and Oh no, Mon Mothma is now working for the dark side, <laughs> converting planets to the Empire. What are we going to do? We're getting shafted. You know, yeah. like. She's such a great Imperial agent. I know! <laughs> it turns out! Um, but yeah, great, just amazing game. I'm just going to echo everything Fraser said about it. Um, Star Wars Rebellion is just a, an amazing game, and the asymmetry is just mm. mind blowingly well done. And I think we've played about six or six or seven times. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah, and every single game has been a, na- a butt clenching, nail biting <laughs> um, sort of. <laughs> That's very kind. I seem to recall one or two times when you absolutely schooled me. <laughs> <laughs> he lies. He's beaten me about as many times. I, I haven't actually kept track, but yeah, just a wonderful game. Um, can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, I I, the, I think the thing that really strikes me about Rebellion is it's a classic fantasy flight, lots of systems kind of game, mm. but then ne- never feels like there's just mechanics for the sake of mechanics. Yeah. Everything feels like it's been carefully thought about how it's pushing forward that, that feeling of you're playing through a galactic rebellion. And um, it was our friend Luke's... Um, stories about all the crazy um outcomes of the games that he was playing that sold me on it Mm. um actually and i think that's yeah it's just a such an impressive game i think you played it with luke before you played it with me i think so i think yeah yeah, luke was the person who got me into as well when luke also got me into my other favorite game but we'll go into that later um luke's another person i wouldn't mind getting on this game yeah he would be great and he tells some good stories such a star wars fan so Mm. if if he's like saying a star wars game is good then Mm. it's like oh i'm I'm paying attention now Mm. yeah yeah yeah, and it's another game where um, the expansion um, was a really good expansion because it added in a few, quite a few new ideas, but it also kind of improved slash overhauled probably the only system that I would have any criticisms of, which, which was the combat yeah, system. Absolutely. I, I, I haven't played the expansion yet. Oh, it's, really? Yeah, it smooths up the combat system and just oh, adds an cool. extra layer to it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, 
if re- the original rebellion had one weakness, it was the combat system was yeah, it's okay. It, it was yeah, it was always more about the kind of it's moving around and and the the political yeah. side of the game was really its appeal. So, yeah, 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 being able to make combat a bit more. And, and I think the secret weapon in rebellion is that it's character driven. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's where the character things come through. You're always sending harm to do something. You're not sending just schmo. Yeah, you're not just sending uh, star destroyer. Mm, yeah. That Star Destroyer is commanded by Admiral Peart. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so we went a full rotation, so we're going to have to go back to Fraser. And all right. We're going to go with um, your other bad game. My other bad game. Yeah, your other bad game. Well, so there is a game, there's several games uh, from this IP, um, and it's the one that I'm beating is probably going to surprise my, uh, well, the, my hosts uh, the most. Uh, and that's the Flintstones from, <laughs> which was published in 1971. Oh my lord! Um, because and the reason why I bring it up, I mean it's pretty classic for that kind of era. It's a, it's we kind of touched upon it earlier. You start at the start, you roll some dice. Well, actually, in this case, you spin a dial, which tells you the number of spaces that you move. Basically, the same as rolling a dice. You move that many <coughs> spaces. If you get, um, sometimes you draw a card that says go forward some spaces, go back some spaces with some vaguely <laughs> themed thing from the TV show. Yabba dabba do, go forward too. I, I literally <laughs> think that might be in it. Um, <laughs> but it's that kind of thing. And it's really dull. Yeah. And I played it at a relatively young age. I must have been like eight-ish. Yeah. And I think it was just, I found it at my grandmother's place. And it was old then. And I was just like, oh, I like the Flintstones. I'll play this board game. And I bring it up because it's literally the very first time I ever remember a board game, or really any kind of game, not being fun. And it was kind of like an an interesting thing for me in that regard because I kind of had this world open to me that just because it's a game doesn't mean it's good. You can have badly designed games. You can have badly designed anything, really. Yeah. And if it's badly designed, it's terrible. So, and so a little part of your innocence died that day. Well. Take that, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> you ruined Fraser's childhood. Yeah. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, yeah, I mean, it was it's it's really bad, and sometimes you learn a bit about life that way. I don't know. I don't find a theme here. How the Flintstones taught me about disappointment. <laughs> there we go. Fantastic. Now, my game uh, also starts with F, so there's our segue. And this game was for a franchise that I was very fond of, and oh, it's one of my this is gonna favorite games um, on PC. And I have played all four versions of the numbered versions, as well as New Vegas. And that is Fallout, the board game from Fantasy Flight Games. I wanted so much from this game. The idea of a FFG-based, narrative-driven Fallout game is like, oh my god, I, it's one of the few games I ever... Because I, I really demand to get something as soon as it comes out, because it's usually a hassle to get it shipped in. Mm. This is a game I actually got straight away imported as soon as I could possibly get it to the country. And this is before I started the channel. And it arrived and I was like, oh, I fought out, oh, I'm so excited. I opened it up, we played, Steph and I played through a, a two-play game and we were like, what? <laughs> what the, what, why? Why is this game a thing? 
And the killer was the victory conditions. This nonsense idea that you're like trying to earn faction points and push a faction one direction and you're competing against each other. But if one of you gets a clue, the other one can action it. So we had this thing where like Steph found something, a clue to a location. And that was a story she was investigating. I instantly knew where that was on the other side of the board. And because I was right by the square, I could move in and finish the quest. And that makes no damn narrative sense. And just on top of that, the mechanics were just eh, forgettable, mediocre junk, and the stories weren't that great. It was just a big pile of bland. Ugh. And my opinion of it only went down the more I played it. Like we really gave it a good go. We we were like, this kid's gotta be good. It's it's gotta be good. Why isn't it good? <laughs> Dear listener, I'd like you to know that's actually what Jared sounds like in real life. Um, he just has this radio voice that he puts on. For it's his lies! Pres- <laughs> lies, I tell you! Um, yeah. So, Fallout. Oh, wow. Yeah, dismal. So, I didn't really have a second game. Like, I was, I was kind of, like, going, oh, well, Dark Crystal, which is done by the same yeah. crowd that did Labyrinth, for pretty much all the you same reasons. You could just reasons. trash one of our favourite games for no but- reason. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do think on, a, on an IP case... Uh, I've got to mention the original collector's Star Wars Monopoly. We had that, right? Yeah. We have a copy of that. Yeah. Because while being able to trade in Imperial credits was loads of fun, and there was a certain comical nature of Chewbacca buying this Death Star. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it did kind of emphasize how Monopoly... It's not a game you can just slap any IP on and it's going to be... Apparently they do. But they do it. They do. I might as well just say every Monopoly IP game because Monopoly is just like... That's a game that's got a very particular ideology behind its design. Mm. Yeah. And there's a a kind of perverse humour that by slapping any IP on it, you're only reinforcing all the negative (laughs) points... About Monopoly's ideology. (laughs) Monopoly is a game that teaches you that monopolies are bad. Yeah. And that exploitative land ownership is bad because one person ends up with all the money and everyone else ends up broke. Well, it's it's only bad if you're losing Monopoly. (laughs) (laughs) But the the, the whole irony... Thank you, Mr. 1%. (laughs) The, The whole irony, of course, is that Monopoly thinks... It's saying becoming rich is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. what it's really teaching you is that one person becoming rich makes everyone else hate them. <laughs> it's so true. And also, I... it gave me a very unrealistic expectation of what mortgages involved. Ain't <laughs> 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 that the truth? So I think there's a general consensus that pretty much every version of Monopoly can just go in the sea. Yeah. 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 The only reason I used to play it, my favourite game of Monopoly when I was a kid was to take all the Monopoly money out of it, get my mother's, uh, my grandmother's um, coffee stand, which had these like multi-layered stands so that Mm -hmm. you could put stuff on the bottom and on the top. And then I'd put all these toys on the bottom one, pretend it was the window in a shop, and then get my brother and my cousins to play shop. (laughs) Because that was more fun. (laughs) Nice. That's fantastic. Alright, and the last round we're going to do is on games we thought were intriguing or interesting. Not necessarily great games, 
Um, but they might have been great games, but ones that surprised us that we went in not necessarily expecting them to be fantastic. So this one is both uh, unexpected because I enjoyed it. Um, I was hoping to enjoy it. The fact that I did enjoy it was still somewhat surprising because I didn't know if I would. Um, it was also surprising because I thought it was surprisingly easy to learn given the kind of crunch I had expected. Um, and I felt that the way it was structured made that particularly helpful. But the reason I'm mostly including it is that it was surprising because I didn't realize it was based on an IP. Um, and that's Space Corp that Space we played Corp. recently with you two, um, which is based on a book called Space Corp by Ina Fulsung, um, who is a NASA engineer who wrote a book in 2014 called Space Corp, the first book of the Galactican series, which I believe has another book either about to come out or has just come out. Um, and yeah, it's an IP-based game. Oh my god, right, that's mind-blowing. <laughs> I had no idea. Me neither. I, I, it was just like hard science and they chucked on some alien stuff, you know, for just shits and giggles. Well, yeah, that's kind of the thing that's... that's why it's, it's like, no offence to the game because I really enjoyed it. It's kind of a generic idea. Like, <laughs> like even the name is very generic. You know, it seems like this generic concept of we're going to be a corporation that's exploring space. Sure. Oh, no. It's based on a hard science. I don't know if it's a labor uh, the libertarian ideology <laughs> kind of novel. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Or maybe it's just a realistic kind of a look at what space exploration in the future might involve. Well, maybe that's a dire example of what happens when a NASA space engineer tries to write a I would point out, I couldn't find much information about him or the book <laughs> online like there's a goodreads article like page about it there's not a wikipedia page about either of them yeah that's but, fascinating yeah so it's clearly like john butterfield the designer of it uh just read the book and thought that'd be a great idea for a, for a thing uh, but not not necessarily because of commercial pressure to go we need to make a game yeah in this mm. that's intriguing and yeah, I don't yeah, know if that happens very often no. I can think of one case like that and that's Bethel Woods oh, which is oh, Jim yeah. Phillips game and the reason he made it is he just loves that guy's uh, music and the, the stories that are around Bethel Woods so Shim was like, I want to make a game based on this. Contact the guy. He said, yeah, go, go right ahead. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I probably should mention the mechanics, given that it's the other thing I sort of was saying, which is that because it's um, structured over three eras of space exploration, I did quite like the fact that the first era introduces the basic um, concepts mm -hmm. and then iteratively uh, introduces more advanced concepts, which is just a great way to, to do a long game because it is a long game yeah um and if you're gonna do a long game doing it like that is actually a pretty genius idea actually. yeah yeah no, completely well, well we we all agreed that that was definitely a game we wanted to oh yeah play again definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely i think it's an it's, Good a, time. it's a weekend game not yeah. necessarily an evening game because i think yeah. four players you could easily hit the four hour mark yeah yeah though in fairness to the game you could just play one of those eras and it does have rules for, i mean it wouldn't be really satisfying but yeah. you could just play an era in an evening or over a sequence of evenings yep yeah. Yeah. And I think if you get to the end of an era, there's not actually that much data you need to save. No. Yeah. It's pretty much what you've got on your board and your score, and that's about it. Yeah, which is not a lot. No. Take a photo. Yeah. Be done. All right, so we're on to my interesting game, my intriguing game. And <clears throat> this was a surprise because it's a very hammy TV show. Like, it's a ridiculously hammy TV show full of nudity, swearing, and murder. And that is Spartacus 
a game of Blood and Sand. <laughs> and I'm sad to play that. I love this game. You've never played Spartacus. I have never played Spartacus. Oh, everyone has told me I should yeah. play it. Yeah. I- I've played Spartacus. <laughs> I'm Spartacus. <laughs> oh, I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> so... There's several things I love about the Spartacus game, and a lot of it's very similar to what happens in a game of Battlestar Galactica. It's the finger-pointing, the accusations and stuff, because there's a lot of uh, playing dirty tricks on each other. So there, And there's also peddling influence of other players, and there's just that whole interaction. And then there's the mini fights that you do inside the arena, which people bet on. It's just a heck of a lot of fun. And it's also got a hell of a lot of Kiwis in it. Mm-hmm. Because the show was produced here, and um, yeah, uh, Crixus the Gaul, Maori. Uh, most of the um, <laughs> most of the other characters, pretty Maori. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of Polynesian boys as um, Thracians and uh, Gauls in that in that show. So a lot of very familiar faces in that in there. But, and of course, uh, the unofficial Queen of New Zealand, Lucy Lawless. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that that's kind of the. Um, Cliff Curtis syndrome, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, like Māori <laughs> actors tend to just be any non-American nationality you mm. want. I think Cliff has played pretty much every nationality. Yeah. Non- That's why it was quite good seeing him on Fear the Walking Dead as, as a Māori. Yeah. 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 So, and he, he'd talk about that and it was actually a part of his character. And I thought that was really cool to see. But it's always good when it's like, we see a little bit of Māori representation on yeah, TV. Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, as Māori, are not pretending to be Arabs. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> they frequently get cast as. Or Central Americans. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, your interesting game. So, my interesting game was one that uh, we tried out some time ago, and that was Doctor Who Time of the Daleks. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. I was really... I was expecting that to be kind of trashy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I was really pleased with it. So that was one I found in a books a game store up in Auckland. I had some time to kill while I was working up there, and I went in there, and they had an open copy. And I was like, yeah. then I was not expecting much of it. Yeah, opened it up. Yeah, solid, solid game. Like yeah. I mean, it's 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 not going to be one that I sing its praises from the rooftops or yeah. anything. But it's it's a game where it's like this to me captured Doctor Who. Like it it understood the show. It understood what fans like about the show yep. you know you have all your favorite monsters showing up you have your cool planets you have the companions and the fun thing of playing different incarnations of the doctor or competing for the same companions is just i love it yeah yeah, yeah. and and there's there's also that whole again emergent narrative thing going yep. on in it which i thought was really good yeah, yeah. yeah. no I, I also really enjoyed playing that game and um it's more or less as you say as a doctor who fan if you're going to play a um, board game with doctor who fans it's kind of one of those things where there's not a lot to choose from, and so when one comes out, you imagine it's probably going to be bad because yeah. there's not a lot to choose from, and so you kind of have to make do with biggest can't be choosers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and no, it's actually really fun. Yeah. And mm. yeah, I probably would only want to play it with people who were already Doctor Who fans. I think yes. it might not be super engaging for people who aren't. Oh, it's, it's, it's definitely more of a game that kind of requires you to have a bit of knowledge about the setting I'm, I'm not sure because mechanically it's quite similar to say Elder Sign mm. I don't know if you need um, to have read the mythos no, no. as long as you get the ideas Me- mechani- oh, yeah. mechanically yeah but I think thematically mm. also the, like, the enjoyment won't come from in, in the English speaking world 
Who hasn't? Who hasn't at least culturally picked up knowledge of some knowledge of Doctor Who over the years? There's well, people from been the around US. forever. Right? That's true. The, that's true. The, the US has has very little He's knowledge about Doctor Who. I suppose. Yeah. 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 Commonwealth countries, at least then. Yeah. yeah. Commonwealth <laughs> countries. Anywhere the BBC was. Oh, you, yeah. you mean you mean the real West, right? Wow. <laughs> 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 Well, they had a war of independence, right? Oh, colonialism. (laughs) And that's the story of how this podcast got (laughs) cancelled. All right, so do we have one more game to cover? Yeah, you um, you asked us to bring bring up uh, three games that we liked that were IP games. And I really do want to talk about the ones. So we've got one more game that we like, so start with yours. Alright, well I did say it for my number one spot, and that's War of the Ring from 2004, which of course also has a second edition. Um, I love War of the Ring. It's a game that I've loved playing um, every time I've played it. I've played it multiple times, mostly with Jared, yep. um, <laughs> and it's a great two-player game. Um, it's asymmetric. A lot of the things that I love about Star Wars Rebellion, I love about War of the Ring. I feel a little bit silly that I've got two games that in some ways there's so many things about them that are uh similar that i love but they are different and i just i remember playing it and i think it was probably the first asymmetric like proper asymmetric game i'd ever really played certainly long form strategy game and i just it blew my mind when i first played it that you could have completely different goals for each side and even more than star wars rebellion those two goals um there's two ways to win for each side but one's a lot easier for one side, yep. and one's a lot easier for yep. the other side, and it's kind of this weird race to <laughs> like, which captures the feeling of the theme so well. Yep. Of you try to destroy the ring before the shadow can overrun Middle Earth, or you can use the ring to fight the shadow, <laughs> like Boromir wanted, and it can actually be quite effective if you play your cards right. Yep. Literally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, just great game that. Um, did some really cool things and also just evokes its theme so well. Yeah. Now that was going to be on my list as well, but I absolutely knew you were going to. Get... <laughs> yeah. I kind of knew you were going to do rebellion as well. I figured figured those two would be on there. But yeah. Fair. E- echoing exactly the same thoughts. Yeah. Uh, wonderful game. Mm. Uh, rebellion and War of the Ring are two of my top ten games of all time. Yeah. They are just every time it's an experience. It's a charm, and they're great stories. And my favorite one is still the game I played against you with the Haradrim linking up bypassing Gondor, which had activated, and pushing through Rohan and ending up in the Grey Havens. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was such a great, such a great game. Well played. <laughs> um, I think Jared's kept a record of every game we've played. Yeah, about. so the score at the moment, I think, is 11-9 to me. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Which is pretty... Like, after 20 games, that is a very close series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I'm looking forward to our next rematch. Yeah. All right, and then I've got my uh, other top one. And if you've been paying attention to the channel over the last year, you've probably heard me mention this game more than once. It was my game of the year for last year. And that is Matt LeCock's Thunderbirds. <laughs> I don't know what it is about this game, but I absolutely goddamn love it. Um, I wasn't actually that big a Thunderbirds fan as a kid. Like, I mean, I watched the show, but it wasn't like... I was much more into Star Wars and Star Trek uh, than I was into Thunderbirds. Even even by the time I was growing up in the 80s, Thunderbirds was a bit kitsch and a bit dated. Uh, the marionettes were still a, you know, a bit stiff and stuff. But holy hell, does Thunderbirds not only captures 
the the narrative and the theme and all the ideas that make up the Thunderbird show. It's also a really clever mix of the pandemic style idea with pick up and deliver. Mm-hmm. And there's something so satisfying about okay, well we're gonna move Thunderbird two here and pick up Thunderbird four and move it over there and deliver. And thinking like three turns ahead of where you need to deploy things and having them in the right place at the right time is just chef's kiss. It's yeah. like, ah, oh, such a satisfying game. And I've played it with people who don't really know the IP and I've played it with absolute casual gamers who had not really played any games at all. And it's worked with every group. Really interesting again how um, I um, re-bought it uh, based on your... <laughs> your um, <laughs> Uh, recommendations because I'm I'm a big fan of um I was a big fan of Thunderbirds and Nasir and I both sort of agreed that we we do really enjoy playing that game. Yep. Uh, but one of our other regular players was like, "Oh yeah, it's an okay game," and I was like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> <laughs> so it's really interesting when you um like for for him, I think he just found I, I don't think he's really into cooperative games as wow. much. Yeah, you got to be in. Yeah, and I and I think he was one of those rare people who kind of has like this predisposed prejudice against Thunderbirds. <laughs> I, I still believe that um, one of the reasons it hasn't performed as well as the IP is even pro- even more obscure than Doctor Who across the mm. US. Oh yeah, and I imagine if it was rebranded as Team America: World Police, um, <laughs> uh, it could have a second life on the American market. <laughs> It's a very good point, actually. Um, yeah, I, I've only played it the once, and I played it with Jared, and yep. um, had a great time. And one of the things I, the thing I was going to mention about it, actually, is that um, it had been so long since I'd seen any of the source material that I'd kind of forgotten a large part of what it involved. Like, to the point where I was even a bit surprised that it was a rescue show. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. And then the thing that really threw me was like, wait, they go to other planets? <laughs> it was sci-fi? What? Because, <laughs> I mean, I remember it had, like, crazy tech, you know, like, yeah. ships that could carry, like, like airplanes that had, like, this um, dropship kind of, like, central core. But, you know, like, that didn't seem too far future tech. But then it was like, oh, no, it's near future, well, nearish future sci-fi. And I was like, how did I not love this more? <laughs> Come on, Lady Penelope and Parker yeah. are like nearly every Commonwealth gay guy's like and go-to people. <laughs> nice. And because we were dissing uh, District 9 earlier and, and putting a bit of shade on Weta, I'm going to throw them to love, love now. And the Thunderbirds reboot TV show, mm. Thunderbirds I Go, which is done with Weta models and uh, CG. Really fantastic reimagining of the show. Like It is a really good kids show. Um, I've watched the first series and yeah, absolutely top notch. Probably, I'd, I'd also love to see potentially a reskin for that. Mm, fair enough. Um, but you know again, what? the commercial success of Thunderbirds, I don't think we'll ever see anything like that, which yeah. is a bit of a tragedy. Right, so my last one was Monolith Games, uh, Conan, and um, Batman Games, because they're both basically the same. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Um, and I'm going to be a bit of a shocker, um, because a lot of people seem to feel that Conan was the better of the two games, yeah. whereas I actually felt Batman Gotham Chronicles was better. So I felt it had something 
more to it. I I genuinely like the Batman mm. Gotham Chronicles game. Uh, it's one I got rid of uh, to me to you. Uh, <laughs> not because I dislike the game, but just because these shelves they yeah. are a, a a crumbling. And it's and it's it's a game that like you have to kind of really get a bit of a commitment to sit down and play it. Yeah, like, and you I can't think just you, pull it off the shelf. And I think you got to love the IP as well. Yeah, yeah. See, because like. A couple of my friends are really big DC Comics fans. Mm. And so the whole appeal of being able to step into the shoes of your favorite DC Batman character. And uh, and, and it does such a good job of making the skirmish feel like something out of a DC comic. And you really, you, you never feel like Batman's underpowered or anything. Yep. You feel like everything's just at the right level. It is really nicely balanced. I, I agree with that. And I think the endurance system and the, the mm. point spend thing works really really well yeah. there's a lot of exceptions and it's definitely a game that needed a hell of a lot more reference cards and, yeah, and bits and pieces yeah. to help you oh, I, I had to print out a thing of the what each of the symbols means yeah. because while once you know what all of them mean you never have to look at those references again from a teaching people how yeah. to play it you, you can't spend the whole time sitting there going through and then this ability does blah 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 you want to put something down in front of the player and just go look just read that. Yeah. That tells you what you need to do. And that's what your character does. Yeah. So a little disclaimer before I make any comments, because I actually, which is that I actually haven't played Batman Gotham mm -hmm. Chronicles yet. Yeah. Um, but my understanding is that you're basically playing the heroes of the Batman verse versus the villains of the Batman verse, right? Yeah. Um, and well, usually one one or two major villains and a whole mook swarm. Sure. Yeah. But the, the point I was going to make is that if you're going to um, have a game themed around you know that sort of idea with superheroes, then Batman is absolutely the right choice yeah. because. Yeah. As has been previously discussed in many conversations around the world, I'm sure Batman by far has the best cast of villains, yeah. um, and so long and and everyone kind of knows them to some extent. And if you and if you don't, that you, you can kind of get it from their visual design alone. Yeah. And so long as you've got mechanics that jive with the theme of that particular villain, I'm sure you'll have a really well, interesting the, adventure against them. The, the yeah. two yeah. core boxes have a really beautiful um, display. It's it's a striking yeah, it striking cover to a box because uh, the Heroes box has like all the classic Batman heroes and then they're mirrored on the other box with all the classic Batman villains. And yeah, it's exactly that. It's like, it's the spot your favourite yep. kind of image. And, and I think that's also a really great example of art for an IP game of being able to just with your cover alone evoke a feeling of I want to open this box and play this game and yep. if there's one thing you cannot argue about Batman Gotham Chronicles is that if you put those boxes <laughs> in a room of gamers inevitably someone opens it up and just wants to fossick around inside it because yep. they look <laughs> at it and they're just like oh my god I want to see what's in this in this box yeah. and like my friend Simon was just he couldn't keep his hands off it. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is my opportunity to do my usual joke to Simon, which is Simon couldn't keep his hands off my box. Um, <laughs> oh hi <Ron. laughs> See, look, I've got I've got to have at least one one a show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we already got that explicit text. If so. anyone's still listening, um... <laughs> All right, so closing thoughts for us on uh, IP games. So I think the themes that have come through are 
hooking into that idea that the game is not necessarily retelling the story, that it's on rails, but that it allows you to recreate your own take on that story. Mm. So it's not playing history, it's retelling history. Mm. It's not playing the story, it's retelling the story. Yeah. And <clears throat> it's taking the world that's available and giving you access to it rather mm. than mm. just running you through. Mm. What other thoughts have you guys got to close off on that? Um, well, I'll jump in with um, every intellectual property, every story has a theme. And if your mechanics, when you're building a board game for that IP, don't evoke that theme, which is kind of what you're saying, but yep. slightly different, um, then how can we why even bother? Yeah. You know? Yep. Like, these are, you know, these are things that we tell ourselves as a society to reflect on the human condition. And, yeah, you need to evoke that. Otherwise, you need to choose a different IP. Yeah. yeah. So why would you make uh, Judge Dredd the accounting game? Yeah. 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 Bang one accountant. Or, or even, bang two accountants. <laughs> even, arguably, why would you make Judge Dredd the literally nothing more than street combat game? Yeah. Which... You could see someone making. I thought someone would, had. Oh, they probably oh, yeah, have. Oh, yeah. well, they're probably there. You go. But why bother? Yep. You know, that's not that's not the theme of that IP. No. Nope. Yeah. 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 No, you're absolutely right. And that, that that's the the thing I, I I've been saying most of this podcast probably is um, people don't want to play the show or the book or the whatever the IPs of right. They don't want to play what they've seen or read. They want to play in yeah. what they've mm. seen or read. And so your game's got to make them... The game has got to be, this feels like this show. This feels like this yep. story. But it's not. It's doing something different. But you still feel like this could have been how that story could have gone. And I think that's often what people prefer. Oh my lord. We've basically described IP games as they should be interactive fan fiction generators. Yes! People, um, I, there's a, there's a, to segue slightly, there's yep. a lot of criticism that fan fiction gets from certain corners um, of, the, of the internet, for want of a better term. Yep. Um, and, and it's interesting because, I mean, I don't read fan fiction, I don't contribute to fan fiction, but I can respect the idea, yeah. which is that it's a creative form of mm. fandom. You yep. know, you love something and you want to create something with that. And I can't, I can't fault that. Mm. Well, in a lot of ways, what's making a role-playing game? You've read the world of Exalted. You've read the world of Star Wars. Yeah. If you're running a role-playing game inside an established mm. setting, you're writing fan fiction. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's is... not a bad thing. No, not at all. But no. this is also a problem that a lot of IP role-playing games run into is, like, if you if you pick an IP that is so fixated, uh, that is so um, reliant on the narrative that uh, it tells... Yep then it's really hard to make a solid role-playing game out of it because people are like, well, what are we doing? Mm. And the two I want to jump in straight away and point out for that, Middle-Earth role-playing and the Babylon 5 role-playing game. The narratives in those two stories are so strong, you're like, well, what are we going to be? Yeah. Uh, We can be rangers in both of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can be rangers faffing about somewhere Mm. while the important stuff happens off-screen. Whereas Star Wars has got... The setting has... We have this big yeah, galaxy. You yeah, can you, you can, can tell other stories in that setting, and that's what um, game um, video games have shown is yep. that there's so many other stories in the Star Wars universe, and Star Trek is the same. Yep. It's like there is nothing about any of the Star Trek shows that 
means that nobody else can be going out and having adventures in this universe. And I think that's a thing that a lot of IP, people looking to get an IP for a game need to consider is what's what's the hook what's what's going to draw people in and if it's if it if it's only repeating a story that's already been told then why are you doing this and war of the ring is a great example of going okay let's not just repeat the story that's told let's give players the freedom to break loose of that story and it's why for all my love of war of the ring i have not gotten the new Fantasy Flight Games Middle Earth Adventure game. Oh, really? Yeah, because I'm like, oh, cool, there'll be rangers and stuff pissing around mm. the edges of the story. War of the Rings an epic. Yeah. Mm. This allows me to retell the epic. Mm. Your Hobbit game that you mentioned earlier, <laughs> that does not let you retell the epic. <laughs> I, I can only barely remember it. There was something to do with, like, there were four troll minis. And I don't know why, and you had to keep circling them until you did something right, and then you can move into the next circle where you oh, can do. I think do... I remember oh, that one. Oh my god, now. it's so bad, and I just don't know why. The miniatures were quite good, actually, though, um, and um, and that's apparently what they get used for because the people who owned it still own it. It's in the, um, they've got the box still in the cupboard somewhere, but they've stripped it of the minis because their daughters just love playing with the miniatures. Huh. Well, I guess some joy came from it. I always love a happy ending. Silver lining. (laughs) So that brings us to the end of the show. I'd like to thank my co-host, Conan McKeg. Yay! (laughs) And I'd like to thank our special guest for today, uh, Fraser Pete. Thank you, Fraser, for coming on board. I hope the experience was all that you feared it would be. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I was expecting a, a, a subtle... Well, no, actually, that's not true. I was expecting an edition of Roast Fraser, slightly. <laughs> and I got what I expected, but I also had a really good time. Yeah, I have to ask, do we ever really do subtle, Jared? No, not really. No. <laughs> and on that note, uh, these podcasts are going to be infrequent and irregular, so I'm not going to tell you when the next one's going to be up. Because uh, I have no idea. Uh, Conan has no idea. No one has any idea. We don't know who's going to be the next guest. And we don't know what the next topic's going to be. So that's probably going to be discussed with my people on Patreon. Thank you all for listening. This will be available as a podcast somewhere else at a later date. I will post that below in the comments. And if you enjoyed this podcast, like it, subscribe to the channel, and support us on Patreon.